Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Francesca Sabande, who is a lecturer in digital media studies at Cardiff Uni, about her new book, The Digital Lives of Black Women in Britain. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is a great book in so many different ways. You know, I I, I find myself saying this um, quite quite a lot um, at the moment, but given how long it takes to write an academic book and, and academic publishing, it's incredible you've managed to publish something that captures a moment and speaks to a moment so, so, you know, kind of perfectly and is so well-timed. And at the same time is both a really interesting uh, book in terms of a lot of different disciplines um, and was full of stuff that I found kind of fascinating and, uh, and challenging as, uh, as, as well. And the place to kind of start with the book is like, why write about the digital lives of black women in Britain? And this, you know, this frames the first chapter, um, but also I, I think is is a great way to to introduce the book as well. Yeah, so I think, you know, for me personally, digital culture had always played a pretty big part in my life. And when I started my PhD in 2015, Initially, I was really interested in black women's television experiences. So I was looking at what was on screen at that time. I was seeing the impact of shows such as Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder. But once I began to do interviews, it became pretty clear that social media and digital culture was really a big part of the daily lives of many black women. And in particular, black women in their late teens, their 20s and early 30s, and myself included, when, when thinking about you know, how, how social media had been a part of my childhood, how it was a part of the, the way I connect with other black women in Britain and elsewhere in the world. And I just really felt that the lives of black women in Britain are really the focus of a lot of media culture and digital studies scholarship. And often when black women's experiences are discussed, they're sort of treated as though they're um, very much sidelined and they, they seem to appear predominantly in relation to a white or non-Black gaze and a perspective that often doesn't really involve critical reflection on the positionality of the researcher and how that might be implicated in their work and potentially some harmful misreadings of Black women's lives. It's really interesting that the book, as you say, you know, speaks directly to um, the scholarship and uh, you know, tries to foreground these potentially marginalised experiences, both, you know, um, in terms of scholarship and in contemporary media. But I was really struck that the book kicks off with not, you know, here's immediately an online, an online analysis or digital ethnography, but actually the book begins with an archive. Um, and I'm interested to know kind of like how and, and, and why I guess the book um begins with uh, Black Cultural Archives in Brixton um, and and why you'd, uh, I suppose this is the term, kind of historicised the analysis of what something 
um, might be seen as, you know, being kind of just purely sort of contemporary. So I think that particularly towards the later stages of this research project, it became really, I, I was really aware of the fact that although the focus was, you know, contemporary online and digital experiences, there was this really vital history of how black women in Britain have been collectively organising and um, have been creating media themselves, have been calling out the media industry because of the ways that black women have been depicted um, in, in stereotypical and derogatory ways for, for many decades. So it felt as though it was pretty important that I made it clear that there was a, a long history of work and a long history of labour in terms of what black women in Britain have been doing to do with issues related to the media before I started to really get into the details of some of black women's digital experiences today. So the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton has been a really invaluable place and space and I've accessed quite a lot of zine material, leaflets, bulletin material from over the decades, which offers a bit of a window into the lives of black women in Britain at different po points in time and in different places as well. So, for example, issues of the Greater London Council Women's Committee Bulletin were really useful for me to read when learning more about the existence of groups such as the Minorities Information Technology Awareness Group or the history of black press activity in Britain, which is so often erased, and just the many different writing, media and publishing experiences of black women. And as someone who was born in Scotland and spent most of their life there, the words of Maud Salter really have stayed with me, um, including comments about the need for more work by and about the lives of black women in different parts of Britain, including beyond London and the South East. So, you know, some of the material that I came across at BCA, which is such a, a vital archive, has really played a central role in how I've learned more about what black women have been doing for a long time in relation to media in Britain and how that has shaped some of their present day digital experiences as well. Yeah, I mean, there's always the risk, um, I think, of any um, media or uh, digital media studies of kind of saying, you know, we, we can say these issues begin um, with the rise of a particular technology mm -hmm. or you know, it's the kind of technologically determinist um, narrative. But it, it's great the way you kind of say, actually, you know, many of the things that uh, the book goes on to discuss are actually things that have been longstanding areas. Mm -hmm. um, struggle um, and, and the archival work really illustrates that. And, and I guess it, it also sets up a broader question about, um, and this is maybe, you know, slightly more uh, kind of theoretical, about what this question of, of representation mm. is, representation means, and the kind of struggles that um, some of your interviewees, some of your participants um, had been part of and mm. had experienced. Yeah, I think, you know, questions to do with, to do with representation have definitely played a big part in this work. But I think... You know, I, I became very conscious that conversations to do representation, especially in mainstream media, it, it sometimes seems to stop short of critically interrogating work and labour practices and the material conditions and structural forms of oppression that really have an impact on how black women experience working in the media industry or, you know, how they, they do or don't have access to the sort of digital technology that's discussed as part of my book. So I think with my work, I really wanted to do something that foregrounds some of the experiences of black women in Britain 
in a way that hopefully challenges um, some disciplinary boundaries and, and deals with questions and issues to do with representation, but in a way which makes it clear that this sort of general statement of representation matters can very much be an empty statement. And I'm more interested in the politics that surrounds representation and the material conditions and, and the realities that black women have to navigate as a result of them. I mean, the, the way to, to make this, to, to bring this to life, um, is maybe through um, Poppy's story. So could you introduce Poppy and, and maybe uh, tell, tell us what her story um, kind of um, illustrates about um, that question of representation and indeed your, you know, almost kind of critique of representation too? So I think when it comes to some of the experiences Poppy would had as a black African Muslim woman in Scotland, some of her experiences just really highlighted the importance of understanding, you know, these the, the interconnections of anti-blackness, sexism, misogyny, xenophobia and Islamophobia. As, and, it, you know, the, the experience that Poppy had had as someone who wanted to pursue work in the media industry, but was was often turning down opportunities because of the potential abuse and harassment that she knew she was likely to face, really makes it clear that media initiatives that are intended to increase the number of black people in certain places or on certain screens are pretty much ineffective if they're not going to really deal with what black people have to experience in these workplace settings. So, you know, beyond trying to amplify black voices or increase the number of black people working for a team, what is the industry going to do to ensure that those black people can work and experience labour conditions that don't come at the cost of their health, safety and well-being. I wonder if you could ex- expand on that a bit. And, and this mm-hmm. opens up um, Ruby's story, uh, which, which comes slightly later in the book. Um, what kind of sort of cultural creative work um, are black women doing? Um, what, what, I guess, you know, are the sort of uh, forms of work and labour and how do they um, illustrate inequalities and, and racism in media industries? Yeah, so so I feel like I could I could speak about this for hours, but there are so many different examples from, you know, incredibly creative content that is being produced and shared in different digital spaces on social media, forms of theorising and knowledge production, perhaps sometimes on on Twitter and and different social media sites and different examples of collaborative collective organizing as well. So I think there are so many different clear cases where black women are making use of digital technology, they're creating content on their own terms as much as possible, but are still having to really negotiate the fact that many of these digital spaces are overseen by institutionally white organizations who don't have black women's interests in mind. And although I think there are examples of content sharing platforms and digital spaces being used in ways that allow black women to bypass certain gatekeepers that are associated with more traditional media and creative and cultural industry routes, there are still a lot of issues and challenges that are involved with doing work that way. So there's often the possibility of content being commodified or co-opted or, or content just being, being stolen in ways that doesn't result in black women being credited and certainly doesn't result in them financially benefiting from the work and labour that they're doing online. I mean, th- th- this is one of the timely um, and, and I guess kind of important um, 
interventions the book makes that goes you know well beyond um, academic discussions and debates because these sorts of uh, questions are alive you know on social media right now mm-hmm. um, you know they're, they're being um, seemingly kind of addressed by large media companies you know changing policies or mm-hmm. having uh, you know changes in commissioning processes or putting money into um, you know various talent discovery or whatever you know, yeah. sort of uh, titles they'd they'd use but but actually one thing the book does as as well as kind of mapping experiences of racism is also to say organizations you, you know do try and respond but actually the story of organizational response is as much a kind of story of failure mm-hmm. uh, and again you, you've got um is it uh, Bobino's story to, to kind of um, illustrate this here yeah, so so there are there are many many other black women who I spoke to who shared stories and experiences that really emphasised the different ways that organisations are spectacularising black people and objectifying them and making use of tokenistic images of black people to imply that their organisation isn't anti-black or they do support the the craft and creativity of black artists even though we know that you know perhaps if it was a, a gallery they're not exhibiting their work. They're not supporting their work in long-term sustained ways. So I think especially this year, in in recent months, when we've seen this real flurry of statements made by organisations in response to Black Lives Matter and the galvanising movement for Black Lives collective organising, I'm really pretty cynical when it comes to my thoughts on what these statements do or don't signify and I think there, there's just so many examples of organisations that are making use of representations of black people or trying to use rhetoric that alludes to some sort of an awareness of or interest in black lives, but without actually doing anything meaningful to suggest that's that's true in any way. Yeah, it's, you know, again, this um, this kind of moment where we see precisely, as you say, the kind of spectacularising um of both you know bodies and experiences at the same time as as organizations saying but look what we're doing you mm-hmm. know or we're on a journey or or whatever um mm-hmm. I, I don't hate the podcast too much but it was instructive that the uh, u.s show cops has been kind of recommissioned this week um mm-hmm. despite you know a, a huge amount of of criticism and, and promises that you know that kind of media making would you know would be at an end in the context of us mm-hmm. black Lives matter um, interventions and i guess you know we, we've got a story of maybe institutions or organizations and that's one part of um the digital life mm-hmm. but the other is about platforms um, and it's probably worth maybe kind of introducing um, some of the platforms that you're interested in um, and some of the platforms that your um, respondents, your participants were uh, engaged with? Yeah, so definitely Twitter and YouTube were pretty pretty significant in terms of how many people spoke to me about the ways they were using them. And in particular, there was a lot of discussion of Black Twitter. And this is where I'm incredibly grateful for the work of scholars such as Meredith D. Clark, Andre Brock, Catherine Knight-Steele, and other Black people who have been doing um, a lot of work that specifically focuses on Black Twitter and the digital experiences of Black people. 
So I think when it comes to YouTube, there were really, you know, a, a lot of brilliant conversations I had with people about the development of web series. So the way that something that was once somewhat DIY or was viewed as an alternative to mainstream media content was now in some cases becoming a part of that more mainstream space. And, and sometimes there were real questions and concerns to do with the potential for um, black content creators to be perceived as selling out or the potential for the autonomy they once had to diminish because of the result of the the sponsorship deals that were being offered or the ways they were collaborating with mainstream organizations that were, were really starting to shape the web series or digital content in a way that made it seem less authentic in some people's minds. That's a potentially almost kind of like benign story, you know, of um, contestations over, mm-hmm. things, as you say, authenticity or mm-hmm. creative control or, cor- you know, corporate commodification. But the other side um, to digital life is the way platforms, you know, have rules and they intervene or actually more accurately, they don't intervene. And again, you know, uh, this is terrible in terms of uh, dating the podcast, but, you know, we've seen um, Twitter intervene quite, you know, um, formally about discussions mm-hmm. of President Trump's health in ways that are just in total um, kind of, um, they fly in the face of the experiences um, of not just black women, but, you know, uh, other marginalized communities on that yeah. platform in terms of abuse. So what are these kind of platform rules and, and what kind of interventions or, or lack of interventions shape uh, digital life? Yeah, so I think the lack of interventions is a big part of the problem. So the real lack of adequate measures and action to address online abuse, in particular online abuse that is anti-black in nature and it involves you know black women being targeted for many different reasons um, related to you know anti-blackness classism homophobia transphobia ableism and so forth and i think the the different rules associated with these digital spaces can vary to some extent but i think what's common between many of them is the fact that the people who tend to create these spaces and tend to oversee them again are, are rarely people who are foregrounding the perspectives and experiences of black women or are taking their concerns seriously enough to actually enact change to ensure that they don't face the forms of harm that they do online. So there, there's a real question for me at this point to do with to what extent can digital spaces provide an experience that is more enriching than not for for many black people and I know that since I started this project there are people who I've been in conversation with who are saying you know in 2015 or 2016 they might have considered doing certain things online or being more public and being a little bit more visible but at this point they've had enough and the message is clear from the point of view of the people who are creating these platforms they're not bothered enough to do something real and and meaningful to attempt to change the horrible forms of digital violence and harassment that black women and black people face i mean at at the same time there is still um an importance to particular platforms and and you you'd mentioned um specifically Mm -hmm. black twitter already and it'd be great to hear um some more about that actually both in terms of I guess, a description of what it is, but but also why it mattered for the women you were working with. 
Yeah, so I think I know I, I I might not be painting a very sort of rosy picture of everything, but as you said, I I agree that it's you know it's it's not helpful to imply that these digital spaces can't be engaged with in ways that can offer some generative experiences or can can help black women to create the sort of work that they want to and share it sometimes with the global audience and i think you know somewhere like black twitter which provides some black people with the opportunity to connect with other black people around the world to experience a sense of connection sometimes even a, a real sense of community that may not otherwise be accessible to them as well depending on where they're located depending on what their life is like there are definite examples of how black people make use of digital technologies and digital spaces as part of you know joyous pastimes as part of how they socialize with other people as part of how they maintain communication with their family, especially during a year like this year. So the last thing I would want to do is imply that there is nothing good that can be um, experienced on the part of black people when logging on and, and when exploring different digital spaces. But I think it's important to recognize that for all that there may be an opportunity to ex experience something um, enriching and, and to experience something fulfilling that brings something good to their lives there's more often than not this you know awareness of the potentially negative elements that can creep up on a, on a daily hourly basis even and I think this maybe comes back to Poppy's experience a bit when thinking about hyper visibility and in her case that was you know existing within the context of Scotland as a black African Muslim woman and I think these issues to do with visibility and hyper visibility and spectacularization and surveillance in digital spaces are are very much a challenge in the lives of many black people. I mean, it, it was really interesting um, that that what would we call it? You know, sort of almost like the ambivalence of these platforms and, and the need to um, you know always, I, I guess, keep a check on um, the slightly kind of you know utopian narratives that might be uh, attached to globalized digital media communications came through in a slightly different way in your analysis of youtube and i was particularly struck actually because mm -hmm. uh you know trying to think about this in like a non litigious kind of way but yeah. you know what one way youtube gets characterized is mm -hmm. as a, uh, as a basis for various kind of you know problematic entries into the public sphere, whether it's, you know, conspiracy theories or particular kinds of, um, you, you know, political positions that espouse mm -hmm. or whatever. But in your analysis, YouTube was this kind of like site for kind of alternative and almost kind of resistance to mainstream media, a mainstream media that, you know, earlier on in the book, you, you mm -hmm. chart as being, you know, kind of hostile, exclusive. Uh, in poor representations uh, of black women. So I'm not going to say like, you know, in defense of YouTube, but yeah. <laughs> quite interesting to hear, I suppose, um, not the platform, but how your black women were using it, you know, and how they found it as a site for resistance. Sure. So I think, again, you know, sort of reflecting on these last five years, 
definitely the conversations that I had way back in 2015 were were different to some of the conversations I was having with people now. So I think also just when I'm thinking about my own perspective, um, there was a point when I think I, I was not really as critical as I could have been about five years ago of the fact that for all YouTube may um, offer in terms of black creativity opportunities and the ability to potentially you know, sh- share stuff with this this wide audience and access different content creation routes that otherwise wouldn't be possible. It has always been a place that has has also been a site of hostility, harm, and hate speech. And it's tricky because what I feel at this point is that YouTube is somewhere that has allowed many Black creatives over this last five years, the chance to do work that has often led to them being able to do work in different spaces. So I think for me, the way I think that YouTube can be beneficial or has been beneficial has been allowing people to establish themselves online in certain ways, to produce work and and share it quite quickly. Um, But at this point, I feel that we would be it would be irresponsible to gloss over the way that YouTube content and and also again, I guess the the lack of real action on the part of YouTube is is part of many of these problems that we're we're seeing in terms of the the far right and extremist hate speech and white supremacist content that is you know making its way into the bedrooms. Of, of children who are going onto YouTube and, and coming across this sort of material. So that that might not be a very straightforward answer or response to the question. Um, I think, you know, YouTube, like many of these different platforms, it can be a way that individuals explore their creativity and connect with other creatives too, I'll say that as well. Um, but I, I, I think it's incredibly important for us to also think about these 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 different political issues alongside these creative ones and although YouTube might be a way for people to establish themselves as as an artist as a content producer as a a media creator again my question is to what extent can these spaces be beneficial for black people if they're also not tackling the forms of violence and oppression that are are really hampering their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you know, the, the book has that dual role of saying, you know, this is not just something that um, can be dismissed, mm-hmm. you know, as like, you know, oh, this is one person's opinion or, or you know, these kind mm-hmm. of classic tropes that you find uh, floating about on social media. But, you know, as you build up the patterns of these experiences, it makes it really clear where the institutional failings are, whilst still having that sense of, you know, the the potential of digital mm-hmm. media. And, and I guess that's where I, I'd, I'd like to start to to conclude, really, mm-hmm. which I was really struck actually by, you know, uh, the book's uh, response to the current COVID context. Um, and it, it'd be interesting to hear not just kind of what you think the impact of COVID will be, although that really, really uh, matters, um, but also, I suppose, where you think the kind of the lessons of the book might be uh, most useful as seemingly, you know, we're dependent 
um, on uh, the digital for, um, I wouldn't say all of our lives, but, you know, now so much more of our Mm -hmm. uh, lives. Yeah, so I think I I was still wrapping up writing um, when all this year and and what it has, has brought sort of arrived. And I was really starting to think a lot as I came to the end of things about COVID and this intensification in terms of the ways that different societies are are encouraging people or not even encouraging but coercing or forcing them to make use of digital technology as part of aspects of their lives that they might not have had to previously and I think something that I hope comes through in the book or at the very least I was starting to think about towards the final chapter is whilst we're seeing conversations to do with things regarding um, harassment and issues to do with people's sort of horrifying digital experiences, whether that is taking part in a call um, or a Zoom meeting and, you know, somebody appearing and shouting slurs or, you know, other examples of people really expressing their dismay at how their digital experiences right now are very invasive and their, their privacy is not being respected. Something that I hope comes through from the book or, or something that I hope people think about is that many of these issues have been part of the everyday lives of of black women for a long time and I have a real I'm I'm interested to see how these conversations to do with sort of digital digital security and digital safety and digital rights unfold over the coming months because it feels as though there's even more of a focus on some of these questions to do with sort of identity and inequality and online spaces than before but I just hope that as the conversations move forward, people are thinking about the experiences of individuals who were dealing with these problems um, long before 2020, really. And is that where your work's going to go next? I mean, obviously, um, you know, made other interventions in mm-hmm. terms of uh, contemporary feminist theory, in terms of, I guess, what we think of as kind of, you know, management, business studies, corporate behaviour. Um, but But what's next in terms of, your research agenda, which which is a bit, yeah. you know, considering you've you've written a great book and now someone's <laughs> like, what are you doing there? <laughs> yeah, so a, a few different things really. Some of them very much connected and others slightly different. But I've I've always, you know, for a very long time been interested in the experiences of black women um, in the, the devolved nations within Britain. So I'm I'm gonna be doing more work to do the experiences of black women in Scotland and hopefully also in Wales. And I'm hoping to do more work that really addresses some of these internal politics and um, some some of the internal politics and power dynamics really within Britain and and how how that impacts black women's lives. And alongside that, different work to do with the content creation experiences of black people and non-black people of colour and various projects that expand on some of the work I've done to do with this this notion of woke washing so where we're seeing corporations essentially trying to capitalize on forms of social justice activism but in ways that ultimately feed into the the type of racial capitalism that they're claiming to to combat so a a few a few different things surrounding all of that um, and then something slightly different I'm interested in different issues to do with the digital representation and remixing of images and ideas to do with famous men so slightly unrelated, but anything really that comes back to, to digital and um, different power dynamics in relation to how people's subjectivities are experienced and explored in media and the marketplace.